Sunder Episode 3, Into the Fire. Trigger warning, this episode I discuss violence and suicidal ideation in stark terms. So the money is watered in a paper bag, lighter than I had hoped, clutched against my belly. I leave out the same bank door that I entered, one hand on the warm grip of the 9mm browning that I put back in the holster of the small of my back to make sure it doesn't jostle out while I sprint. I'm looking for cops and civilians, and none are in sight. I run to the bank parking lot and onto a nearby residential street. My used 10-speed bicycle is where I left it, leaning against the retaining wall of a recessed driveway. This was a calculated risk in that the three- or four-minute window of time I left the bike here, that someone could steal the bike or the homeowner discovered the bike. It's a narrow driveway with high retaining walls, making the interior of the space low visibility from the street unless you're right there. My heart is pounding, and the sprint feels good with all the adrenaline in my bloodstream. Off comes the disposable gloves, the stocking that I had on my face, the blonde wig, the baseball cap. I put my glasses on. I strip off my outer jacket and pants and unstrap the courier-style army surplus bag from my belly. The disguise and the money go in the bag. The pants and jacket I'm now wearing are a different color from what I wore in the bank. I have three spare eight-round magazines one in my jacket pocket, one in my bag, and one in my pants pocket. I'm not carrying anything else. No ID, no wallet, no keys, nothing. The street is quiet. The messenger bag is slung over my back, hiding the holster that's under my jacket. I'm listening for sirens and moving as quickly as I can. 45 seconds for the changeout. My heart is pounding. I've got to get some distance between myself and the bank. I hop on my bicycle and ride into the neighborhood. I'm riding with some purpose, but still attempting to look casual. I'm not sprinting. I want to blend. Within 30 seconds, a police car turns onto an adjoining street, but the cop heads towards a pedestrian and turns on their lights about a half block from my location. I'm pretty sure the pedestrian is wearing the same color pants as I wore in the bank disguise, but I'm not staring or sticking around. I keep riding, turning a street corner quickly, hoping to gain distance and clear the area. I'm still planning to head to a predetermined location and check for die packs, where I'll decide if I have to ditch the disguise and reassess my next steps. What I didn't know is that the cash I took from the teller is bait money and has a GPS transmitter. Nearby, police cars are triangulating on the signal. The police aren't going to be fooled by a costume change, and I just wasted 45 seconds. I cut through a number of residential streets and ride onto a two-lane feeder road with cars parked to my right a sidewalk to my right as well. Very light traffic in the street, maybe a car passing each direction every 30 seconds. A police car with lights on turns onto the street some blocks back and comes up behind me. Fuck. I steer my bicycle off to the side in the parking lane next to the curb and stop. I'm attempting to play it like I'm a civilian, making room for the cop car to pass. I'm straddling my bike, my feet on the ground, looking over my left shoulder to the cop car diagonally behind me about 30 feet. It's the afternoon, traffic is light, and there is no one walking nearby. Not good, I'm grappling with a strong probability that I am fucked. The car doesn't drive past, it stops. In my head I'm saying, oh fuck, oh fuck, oh fuck. My adrenaline is spiking and my heart is pounding. A cop gets out, standing with the car door open, and points at me, using his left hand. Put your hands up, he yells. He's riding alone. His right hand is on his weapon. My plan was to rob the bank and get away with it or else get killed by the cops in a shootout. 
If I got, got away with it, I would donate half the money anonymously to the free Mumia Abu Jamal fund, use the other half for myself. I've been lying to my fiancé about saving money. This would maybe solve that. The plans are crumbling, falling apart. The foolish options I've given myself are narrowing down like tunnel vision as the outer layers slough away. I begin to raise my hands and then instead reach for the holstered browning at the small of my back. I've got the 9mm free of the holster with my right hand as the cop draws his weapon. I'm still straddling the bicycle looking over my left shoulder. Around from the cop's Sig Sauer 45, tunnels through the air between us like a metal bee. Something tugs my back and then hits my right bicep hard. Every bone in that arm is ringing, vibrating like a tuning fork with the force. Like an afterthought, now I hear the echo of the shot clap off the surrounding buildings. I'm bringing my right arm up and around, holding the weapon, trying to lift it. I don't know at the time, but my right humerus is broken. I know my right arm is bending in the middle of my bicep, unable to support its weight. The round has entered an inch to the right of my spine, made a right turn following my ribs, collapsing my right lung, and exited out of my right lat. It then entered into my right bicep, where the humerus, the bone connecting from your shoulder to your elbow, absorbed all the kinetic energy and broke in a spiral fracture. The slug lodged in my right bicep. So two entrance wounds, one exit wound, a collapsed right lung, and a broken humerus, my arm hanging down like a sack of gravel. I am reassessing my situation in real time. The cop has dropped down behind the door of his police car out of sight. I step off of my bike, and it falls over as I move six feet diagonal to the sidewalk to get more of the cop car in between the cop and myself and potentially flank him. I don't know why the cop dropped down. I know they are trained to empty their magazine in a firefight. I know they are trained, if they are going to shoot for any reason, to empty the magazine. Much better for the cop after the fact to be able to tell a story however they like with the suspect dead. I can see a second police car is racing toward our position behind the first cop. My options appear to be to switch the weapon to my left hand and engage, to attempt to run down the street and get clear, or to surrender. All this is taking place in a few seconds. Despite my resolve to be killed in a shootout if I didn't get away, despite my death drive, part of me does not want to die. I'm likely going into shock as well. I assess running and the odds seem bad. I assess switching the weapon to my left hand. As the second car pulls up, I instead fail my suicide by cop mission and lay down on the sidewalk. I later found out the cop's trigger spring had broken on his weapon after the first shot. He thought there was a jam and a drop down to attempt to clear the obstruction. The chances of a trigger spring breaking are extremely low. The chances of a trigger spring breaking during an engagement are astronomically low. If the trigger spring had not broken, likely the cop would do as he was trained and empty his magazine, and I would likely be dead. Shock is kicking in. The cops who piled out of the second cop car take the gun off the sidewalk nearby and stand on my wrists until the EMTs show up. I get loaded onto a stretcher and put in the ambulance. A cop gets in the ambulance with me. The EMT in the back with me decides he's either an amateur detective or that keeping me conscious involves being a dick and demands that I talk to him and tell him my name. After refusing a few times, I tell him to go to hell. He tells me, I don't have to make this easy on you, you know. I find this threat to be hilariously absurd and start laughing, but it's getting harder to breathe and the pain in my side and arm is starting to bleed through the adrenaline and shock. I don't know the name of the cop who shot me. I really don't think about him at all, both then and today. I created a situation where that cop was responding to a person with a weapon. 
I don't feel particularly bad for cops in general. They aren't innocents and aren't civilians. Cops know what they signed up for. That person in body armor has the training, the gear, and a gang to back them up. Statistically, a cop is much more likely to die by eating their own weapon than to ever get shot themselves. There's a disconcerting number of cases where the cops murder their own family before suiciding themselves. These last few years, cops were much more likely to die of refusing to vaccinate and contracting COVID. Amazon warehouses are classified as more dangerous employment than law enforcement these days. Working a night shift at a 7-Eleven is more dangerous than being a cop. All this, of course, is complicated by my father being a retired cop. If you know anything about priest kids and cops kids, for some, there is an overcompensation rebellion. Something to prove. My father and mother are of the so-called silent generation, born in the 1930s, during the Great Depression. In our household growing up, you said yes sir or yes ma'am to direct questions, enforced by my ex-military workaholic father. I know part of my motivations in criminality likely connect to emotional immaturity and rebellion against and resentment toward my father. Growing up with a cop father, I learned a few things. Before moving to Alaska, he was trained by the LAPD. The cop showed him how many highway patrol officers had a derringer that clips onto the underside of your ticket book, pointing at the driver you just pulled over. They trained cops to use pain compliance techniques that look better than swinging the baton like a baseball bat when being photographed and filmed, but with the same amount of damage. In the police locker room in Anchorage was a poster that said, Nothing gives a suspect pause like a sucking chest wound. My dad told me how the police specifically recruited and trained, quote, badge heavies, enforcers there to control the populace, the Insular's police subculture of paranoia and thin blue line propaganda for the police to tell each other is part of the package. Part of my motivation to my initial armed robbery, well before this bank robbery, was also to test myself. I feared that I could not go beyond or outside my conditioning to be a consumer and wage slave. This in my mind now, I see, was also emotional immaturity on my part, a deep-seated insecurity. I fear that I am inadequate to the task of being a human instead of a clever animal yoked to a life of exploitation. Keep in mind all this is armchair retrospectives. People have all sorts of motivations, and it's a little self-serving to claim that I had a particularly clear or coherent set of motivations. But now, these make some sense to me, and we are a pattern-seeking and narrative-driven species that likes to make sense of things. But people also just do crazy shit sometimes. You might or might not be surprised by the number of people who have committed felonies, both recorded and unrecorded, and have criminal pasts in the United States. In 1997, I felt powerless to change the world in a meaningful way. I saw no formations nor movements capable of affecting change, and felt despair at the idea of a life of exploitation, at the top of a chain of deeper and more malevolent exploitation all the way down. I was, and am, angry that the world is one of such inequality and injustice, but my political education was lacking. I had canvassed briefly for Lenora Filani of the New Alliance Party, attempting to get her on the ballot for president. Before that, I had been part of a small radical ecology group, promoting zero growth, permaculture, and bioregional living. We also had somewhat incoherent politics around secession into a bioregion that I look back on with some mild chagrin. The primary leader of the group began to make destructive decisions in their personal life, and the group fell apart. 
Later, we found out from court documents that we had a confidential informant, an agent provocateur, working with the police inside the group. I internalized a deep despair that the conditions of our world would only get worse and didn't understand how to build mass movements or power to change that. A vibe that seems to be very much part of our culture in the U.S. today. I have no love for cops, but I also don't fixate on them today. Fighting cops is not the point. To quote the rapper Killer Mike, who is himself the son of a police officer, I want the masters, not the servants. My suicidal ideations were selfish and messy, and at the time I told myself I wouldn't blow my own brains out because I was convinced I would fuck it up and survive as a vegetable. But there are lots of very reliable methods for killing yourself that don't involve acting out or making others perform that task for you. When I'd been in prison a few years, a guy in my housing unit asked me what I was in prison for. Armed bank robbery, I said. Ah, he replied. Desperate cry for help, then. They unload me at the hospital. I'm still in shock, and the pain is a mixture of stronger but farther away as whatever they injected me with in the ambulance takes effect. I'm cold and shaking. I'm taken into surgery prep. They cut away the rest of my clothes. The anesthesia hits, and there's a disorienting time jump. When I wake up in recovery, I've got a soft cast on my right arm, an IV drip, and a chest tube sticking out of my right side, running to a gurgling box at the foot of my bed, keeping my right lung inflated. My left wrist is handcuffed to the gurney. A cop sitting next to the bed fingerprints me. I assess at this point I am not escaping. I tell the attending officer my name, tell them the name of the bakery where I work, and tell them to let the bakery know I won't be able to make my work shift that night. This is me being foolish, which is why I'll run a PSA right after this section. I make the mistake of saying anything without talking to an attorney first. Rule number one is, don't talk to anyone but your goddamn attorney. Even if you're loopy from anesthesia. I don't particularly run my mouth, nor admit to anything, but I'm being a dumbass when I ask if the cop who shot me is on suspension pending investigation. When he asks why I know that, I tell him my dad's a retired cop. I didn't admit to anything, but still, it's poor discipline and dumb, and I felt embarrassed afterwards and today that I said a fucking thing. In the next episode, we'll talk about jail, court, FBI suits making the rounds, more aftermath of the bank robbery, and you and I will start the journey of jail and prison. Hi, I'm Brian, the host of Sunder. In the podcast, I'll walk you through an armed bank robbery I committed in 1997 and the aftermath, so there's true crime described from the first person. I'll also be discussing politics from the point of view of a volunteer labor organizer and socialist, so it is a political podcast. And lastly, I will talk about how to break free of the zero-sum paralysis of this life to sunder the bonds of suffering, how to take action and change this world in your community right now. You likely already know voting will not be enough. The courts and the politicians and the capitalist system and technology will not save you. Laying back in the cut and waiting to see how things turn out will not save you. Getting black-pilled and drowning in a sea of despair will not save you. Tear free of the bonds of com- passive consumption and stand together for a mass movement. Agency is your destiny. 
good hunting organizer. Welcome to Sunder. Oh, hello. We were just talking about you kids. I'm Denise Heverly. And I'm Bill Goodman. Together, we've been fighting fascism for over 50 years. And so much has changed over those 50 years, such as the ingredients to a successful firebomb. And the glass that bank windows are made of. But there's one thing that hasn't changed over 50 years, something that is so important to tell you kids who are new to this movement. Shut Shut the the fuck up. up. You're sitting in the police transport van after a protest? Shut the fuck up. In a holding cell with your comrades? Shut the fuck up. Cop knocks on your door? Shut the fuck up. Texting on an unsecured device? Shut the fuck up. Pulled over by the cops after a protest? Shut the fuck up. Cop just asking about your day? Shut the fuck up. Feds, call your mom? Tell your mother to shut the fuck up. Now, repeat after me. When the cops come calling, what do you do? Shut the fuck up! Section 2. Work and Class Consciousness I've been in the workforce since the late 1980s. I had been working full-time for nearly a decade when I robbed the bank. My first job was bussing tables and hotel room service. I've worked as a dishwasher, a line cook, a janitor, a prison kitchen worker, and a prison factory worker. I've worked as a baker, a bakery manager, and as a warehouse worker. Work is where you will likely spend one-third of your adult life and half your waking hours. Your education was or is likely geared toward preparation for your work life. The gains for working people, workers' compensation, child labor laws, overtime laws, a 40-hour work week, Pensions, safer working conditions, 10-minute breaks. These came from organized labor fighting the exploitation of the capitalist structures and getting strong enough to force concessions from the owner class. Many workers and community members fought to transform society, and some were murdered in the struggle against strike breakers, union busters, hired goons, cops, and federal troops. A blood price was paid so that you and your children can have a modicum of dignity and respect in work. When I entered the workforce in the late 80s, I could mostly support myself and pay rent on one income, though it was not as possible as it had been in the 60s and 70s. When I started working, you could work 40 hours in a week, and overtime was something you chose if you wanted it. College was something you could pay for while working a job. All that has been eroded. Today, the standard that companies are pushing towards are megacycles, 12-hour day and night shifts, mandatory overtime, Overtime call with short notice and an unpredictable schedule, making it very hard to make medical appointments, set child care, attend classes, or simply have a life. I know an Amazon worker who hates the conditions at Amazon, but told me, I don't leave Amazon in part because I know in five years, if we don't change things, every job will be like Amazon. The reason the U.S. does not have universal health care, standard in nearly every other advanced nation in the world, is complicated. Part of the issue is that systems in place make a massive profit privately and lobby very hard for that money funnel to never be turned off. It's also because that would give you, as a worker, more agency and less precarity, something the U.S. economy of exploitation cannot abide. Workers who are not worried about losing their health care and doctors aren't as easily forced into shitty jobs. 
Gig jobs are now nearly half the jobs in our economy, the jobs with no path to advance and no future. The stimulus checks during the pandemic scared the owner class to death. They have been transferring all wealth upward and left wages decoupled from unemployment and productivity for decades now. And their business models require a massive, desperate underclass that has to accept low pay, poor benefits, and no workplace democracy. That's why you hear the servants of capital openly calling for pushing U.S. workers back to the razor's edge, as if most workers weren't already having to ration between seeing a doctor or fixing a commuter vehicle or covering rent. Most workers being priced out of renting in the cities where they work, most workers living paycheck to paycheck, and many families working multiple jobs and struggling to cover childcare. The number of people defaulting on car loans alone, the vehicles they use to get to work, is a stark indicator of precarity. The reality for a lot of workers in the U.S. now is that changing jobs means downward mobility, not upward. The boss sucks, or the pay sucks, or the hours, or the commute, or the benefits, or the conditions, or some combination, and eventually, when you reach the point of frustration, the impulse is to quit and get another job and hope your workplace sucks less. The time to burnout for education workers and healthcare workers averages about five years, with many leaving that career path entirely. It is scary to see a 19-year-old get their first job and internalize that this exploitation is the norm. They aren't wrong to think that unless you and your co-workers organize the change conditions and fight your massive exploitation that gets worse over time. This is the norm for most humans today. The good news is class consciousness can make a real comeback. In the U.S., we are propagandized to see Bill Gates standing in line at a taco truck or get two-day free shipping and our treats in our hands and think, oh, we're the same. Billionaires are just like us. Americans propagandized by libertarian rhetoric, decades of the Coke industry's funded bootstrap rhetoric that has people orienting themselves towards their masters who feast on the exploitation of the working class. The heavily propagandized don't want taxes to go up because they think of themselves as temporarily embarrassed millionaires instead of being a few unexpected bills from houselessness. We have a class of professional managers that lap up the propaganda of their masters and are comfortable with a neoliberal model of experts in control, while your role as a worker is consumption and servitude. Here's the thing. Class consciousness can be rebuilt and the fire rekindled. You can consciously choose to have solidarity with the people around you of many cultures and backgrounds who also want to have a good job, provide for their family, see their neighbors and community have those same opportunities. It is important to remind yourself of that conscious solidarity each and every day, and then live that way and help kindle that consciousness in your co-workers. The boss wants you, needs you, blaming each other and divided. So fuck that. Punch up. Identify the source of your oppression and conditions, and build solidarity with your workmates. Capital and the owner class fear one thing only, the ability of the working class to organize and strike. Nothing else moves capital because capital and the profit motive does not care about anything but the power to control the extraction of profit from workers. Power only recognizes power, and the working class only has power in the ability to organize and strike. Breaking windows, quote, speaking truth to power, unquote, marches and protests, capital will sell you more windows and security systems. 
They will monetize your mobilizing. They will insert corporate messaging. The ability to organize a mass movement centered in workplace strikes and then general strikes is what makes the masters afraid. If you learn one thing today, this is it, and I'll repeat it. The ability to organize a mass movement centered in workplace strikes and then general strikes is what makes the masters afraid. Nothing else. Bernie Sanders focuses on broad class issues in this way and frames a narrative around class issues which undermines the divide-and-conquer strategy of the elite owner class and their paid-for politicians. This is why, when it appeared Bernie was on track to potentially win the 2020 primaries, that Barack Obama called on Bernie's political opponents to collapse their campaigns and get behind Joe Biden, the man who literally told a room full of millionaires and billionaires that if they elected Joe Biden, quote, nothing will fundamentally change. Much of the subtext of modern life is anti-solidaristic, promoting competition between workers and exploiting divisions. You drive by yourself in a car on a road competing for space and access with others. Workplaces, more often than not, ration the basic tools to do the work, pitting workers against each other and promoting individual gain over teamwork and camaraderie. An economic system that clearly requires a massive, precarious underclass desperate for income. Borders that are entirely porous for capital and the threat and promise of offshoring jobs to some place with fewer work protections, benefits, and environmental laws. When I worked as a prisoner in a prison furniture factory from 1999 to 2002, our bosses were corrections officers, our literal captors. I would finish a shift and then go back to the housing unit, lie in my bunk and stare at the metal ceiling two feet above my head, or write a letter to my spouse. I wait for the COs to call count time, where we as prisoners had to stand and be counted in our cells before being called to the chow hall. Eventually, in the furniture factory, I made one of the highest tier wages at the time, $1.15 an hour. As workers, our prisoner labor was pitted against free workers. Accept lower wages or have someone paid a tiny percent of your income to take that work instead. It is up to you and your co-workers to rebuild some level of consciousness about who you are, what side you are on, and to prove that dignity, respect, and democracy at work matters. That the purpose of work, if you decide, isn't just naked exploitation and alienation. It's also important to identify that you're not fighting for the same autocratic power of the boss. You're fighting for what Daisy Pitkin describes as the power of the beloved community. Solidarity in building common ground and collective bargaining power is about love, not power for the sake of power. The power of the boss is autocratic and authoritarian. In organizing, the power you build is not to then replicate autocracy, it is to build democratic and inclusive structure that allows people to work together and decide together. The United States went from less than 9% unit density at the beginning of the 1930s to more than tripling to one in three workers being in a union by the 1940s. That happened because hundreds of thousands of workers just like you decided for themselves to take on the mission of organizing and changing conditions and fighting for better. That meant often engaging in strikes, including illegal strikes, after having built the consciousness and the solidarity 
in your workplace. If you want a modern civil rights movement, look at the civil movement of the 1960s. The base of the civil rights movement was churches and organized workers, often in militant unions, that had the discipline and political education to tie clear demands to actions and press in a way that was not easily co-opted nor derailed. The March on Washington was the march for jobs and freedom, explicitly tied to class and economics. If you want to actually have a just transition into a decarbonized economy and not burn the planet down, Sunrise has made monumental strides but recognizes that deeper organizing, not just mobilizing, is a requirement. If you want universal health care, while most recognize our system for health care is broken, attempts so far have been often around mobilizing people to come out for one event, or for one day, or for one election, and then go home and not actually organize to build a credible plan to win, through clear demands and continual pressure from below to force the leaders to get on board or get out of the way. If you want reproductive rights and abortion on demand, if you want liberation, organizing in your workplace and community, not one-off mobilizations, is the path. There are strategic sectors in this fight that you may choose to enter, work that cannot easily be offshored and that can provide the leverage to actually take on the capitalist bosses. Logistics, moving goods from one place to another, is a strategic sector and in part why I focus so much on organizing Amazon. Healthcare is a strategic sector as is education as well as building trades and public sector work that actually makes the governing bodies function. You have the ability to learn how to organize DSA chapters locally. Labor Notes nationally often provide classes on how to organize with your coworkers, including building specific practical skills. Having a mission changes your work in the best way. Organizing dissolves the paralysis of your alienating social conditions. Labor Notes is an incredible online resource, as is the Emergency Workplace Organizing Committee, also known as EWOC, a trove of resources and help for you to take agency and change your world. Now you see, this little bird doesn't know it. Oh my. I think, I think there may be some symbolism here. I know it doesn't look like it, but that bird is really a dove asking us for world peace. No more wars. Part 3. Vegas Strip Mobilizing 
I got involved with my local Democratic Socialists of America chapter at a time when the DSA for Bernie Sanders campaign was just kicking off. Bernie's message remains powerful and clearly pushed back against the billionaire propaganda and scared the hell out of the wealthy owner class and the Democratic Party leadership. Presidential candidate forcing the dialogue towards Medicare for All and a Green New Deal, towards infrastructure and a focus on the needs of the working class of the U.S., was vastly different than the posturing and glad-handling and platitudes of the other candidates that act as servants of capitalism and preservers of the status quo. I volunteered in the Portland, Oregon Democratic Socialists of America chapter to be the lead fundraiser, which meant mostly that I tabled and did my best to help develop and sell merchandise. Posters, bumper stickers, t-shirts, buttons, books, bracelets. I also made banners, putting my graphic design training to use. I continue to make banners for my DSA chapter. I think I'm up to about 25 or 30 now over the last three years. I want to emphasize that you can join a volunteer campaign in your local DSA chapter and find a space where you can be useful, learn, and move the work forward. This isn't a specialized field, though you can bring your skills to the work. One of the most galvanizing experiences in my life was being able to go to the Las Vegas Strip and help volunteer to mobilize casino and hotel workers to caucus for Bernie. One of the members of our local campaign was able to secure us housing for the campaign in Vegas. His family there was welcoming and simply the best. It was inspiring to see volunteers show up to Canvas. A minibus full of teachers from Arizona, six nurses from Michigan, people in ones, twos, and threes from all over the U.S. there to do real work, talking to voters at their doors, calling voters. There was a huge energy between the volunteers that this was winnable. Discipline combined with a belief that we would see this through being part of something bigger than all of us, but being also a force multiplier, exponentially ramping up our determination and hope. My heart swelled with gratitude to be engaged in building a viable path toward a better future. Our team focused on the Vegas Strip, scouting the casino and hotel properties for where workers parked and entered the facilities, asking them to caucus for Bernie Sanders, using flyers and brief interactions. Often we had limited windows of time as casino and hotel security would move to clear us from the properties, and in Las Vegas everything is hotel or casino property. We were trained and disciplined, strategizing to circumvent and de-escalate interactions with casino and hotel security, sending different teams to locations each day, and scouting for the rest of the Vegas Strip properties, looking for opportunities to interact with workers. It was amazing to know Thousands of volunteers were on the same mission, on a deadline, moving a project forward in real time. Debriefs at 6 a.m., assign targets and teams, and then work on the ground for the day, figuring out shift change times. My Spanish, a mixture of prison and kitchen Spanish plus two years of Spanish in high school, got a real workout, interacting with a largely Latino workforce, though there were also multilingual organizers who spoke the languages of many immigrant communities in Las Vegas. There was an added complexity. The union, representing the majority of casino and hotel workers, had built much of their union contract around health care. These union workers had, through their contract, access to the best hospital in the city as part of an amazing health care plan. The union leadership was hedging their bets and ambivalent about Bernie and Medicare for All. This is a vitally important lesson. The rank and file is the real power in a union, and that's who we were talking to. We also weren't there to be mad at union staffers or make waves with the union. Instead, we were simply organizing past them. The line I like is, 
Quote, I burn through your arguments with action, to quote the rapper Yassine Bey, once known as Most Deaf. Ideally, all unions would be strengthened through universal health care. Then union workers could negotiate for conditions and wages instead of spending so much time on health care insurance. Also, when the pandemic hit, tens of thousands of those same workers got laid off and lost the amazing health care they had had for themselves and their families. The lead organizer for the Vegas Strip Caucus had been the lead on organizing the satellite caucuses in Iowa for Bernie Sanders, talking to immigrant workers in meatpacking facilities. When I asked about his background, I found that he had spent two years as a salt, working and organizing his fellow workers into a union as they produced airline meals. I knew at that point I wanted to be a salt. I had never met a person who had built skills working a job and then by speaking with and sharing conditions with other workers had massively impacted the direction and outcomes of key electoral fights. He's my personal hero and an inspiration, a liberated human with agency fighting for a better world. That's the real shit, not the clout chasing or influencing or hustling. That's doing the work. Agents of people power that I'm describing here are largely invisible in the online space that some can mistake for reality. I saw thousands of people building and growing, organizing skills, and moving a credible plan to win forward. You and your siblings in the working class can simply choose to galvanize your willpower and your bravery. You come away full of gratitude and empowered. Most other things in this life pale in comparison. Doing this work with my fellow siblings in the working class in my local DSA chapter also forged stronger relationships and respect for each other. Seeing each other step up and take on the work and learn and grow skills continues to inspire and spiritually enrich me. All this was possible in my life because I got involved in my local DSA chapter because I realize that mass action is the only viable path where you and I have a future that isn't even worse than this bad ride we're on right now. I decided to fight for a better world and to commit to that fight for weeks and months and years. The real shit, not online endorphin rushes and one-upmanship and posturing. Not as an expert, but as a willing student. Not on a high horse, but shoulder to shoulder. You have a role to play in this as well if you aren't already engaged. Your call to action is right now. Next episode continues to move the story forward. Subscribe and catch the whole tale. Turns out there's more to this story of bank robbery and politics and taking action in a troubled world. Please help me possibly gain the algorithm by rating and reviewing the podcast. This could help more people listen and know this podcast exists. More importantly, be a good person, have friends and tell them about this podcast. Sunder is written, edited, and produced by Brian Denning. The theme song is by Holy Sons and used with permission. You can contact Sunder at podcastsunder at gmail.com. Support the work being done here by subscribing on Patreon. Even better, become a dues-paying, participating member of your local DSA chapter. You and your co-workers, neighbors, family and friends have this decade to change course and build a survivable path in a post-scarcity world. Commit to the mission and build your skills. Good hunting.